Hey everyone, welcome to Unforgettable, hosted by yours truly, myself, Megan, and this is a true crime podcast. In today's episode, I will be covering the 1976 bus kidnapping in Chowchilla, California, one of the largest scale kidnappings in U.S. history. I really wanted to do this episode because it's really fucked up and heartbreaking, but it does have a good ending and I feel like I haven't given you guys any positive endings yet, so let's jump right into it. On July 15th, 1976, a bus with 26 children aged 5 to 14 left their school with their bus driver, Ed Ray, who was 55 at the time, to go to a swimming outing at the local fairgrounds. The bus left the fairgrounds around 4 p.m., making their way back to the school to be picked up by their parents. While on their way back, Ed sees a white van blocking the roadway and tries to remove her around the van. A guy in overalls with pantyhose covering his face jumps out in front of the bus with a revolver. The man walks to the driver's side window and asks Ed to open the door. Two more identically dressed men jumped in, one with a rifle which he points at Ed. The other man took over the driver's seat while the two other retreated back to the white van to the next location. The bus and the van stopped about a mile from the initial scene of the crime and made the children and Ed jump from the bus into the windowless white van and a green van in an attempt to avoid leaving footprints for police. The bus was then left in the bush and the two vans sped off with the children and Ed inside. The drivers took them to a third location, driving around for 12 hours without any food, water, or proper accommodations and didn't stop at all. The men took the children and Ed to a rock quarry about 100 miles away in Livermore, California. It was about 3.30 in the morning at this point, and they make all the children and Ed climb down a ladder into a trailer that was buried 12 feet underground. The kidnappers forced each child and Ed to provide their name and give up a piece of clothing for ransom demands that the kidnappers had planned to make. Once all the children were inside the trailer underground, they removed the ladder and the kidnappers started shoveling more dirt on top of the trailer, which caused the roof to buckle. Ed immediately starts to worry that the ceiling's going to cave in and starts to wonder about suffocation. The trailer has two air holes that are connected to hoses running above ground to a tree. There's a mattress on the ground and almost no necessities. The only necessities that they were given were Wonder Bread, peanut butter, potato chips, and water jugs, and there were also some holes carved for toilets. And although they provided the stuff for them, it wasn't enough for all the children for nearly 12 hours in there. The kidnappers also put 100-pound tractor batteries over the entrance of the trailer, making it nearly impossible to get out. I decided that action needed to be taken and taken quickly. I'd allowed the children to sing to keep their spirits up and really did his best to keep them calm and keep himself calm. Two of the older children and Ed planned to reach a hole in the roof to attempt an escape. Ed and the two older kids stacked the mattress to reach the hole. 14-year-old Michael Marshall and Ed took turns pushing the manhole cover that blocked their escape. This required removing wooden slats from the provided box spring and pouring water over themselves to stay cool 
using all their strength and willpower to not only move the cover, but they also had to move the two tractor batteries. The two kids and Ed finally got through and had to begin digging another 12 feet of dirt to get out. Between Ed and Michael's digging, they cleared enough space to escape. Michael cautiously stuck his head out of the dirt to make sure the kidnappers weren't nearby. The children were climbing up on each other's shoulders and Ed led the children out and their presence at the quarry alerted a nearby worker who gave them some Pepsi and alerted authorities. A Greyhound bus arrived to take Ed and the children to the Santa Rosa Correctional Institute where they received necessities and looked at by doctors before heading back to Chowchilla, which this is kind of sad. Like the first place you have to go after being kidnapped is a fucking prison. I mean, I totally get it. It's probably like the biggest facility that's closest that could hold all of them safe safely and provide health care, but probably not ideal. <laughs> Anyways, the children were kept underground for 16 hours, making the kidnapping last 36 hours long. The attention from the news outlets, both local and nationwide, led to an outpouring of tips coming into the Chochilla Sheriff's Office. The tips didn't lead anywhere, although they kept the sheriff's line so busy that the kidnappers couldn't even make their ransom demand call. So, since they were so busy and when they called, then obviously the call didn't go through, the three of them decided to go to sleep and take a little nap. But while the kidnappers were sleeping, this is when Ed and all the children escaped. Unfortunately, not all the news about the kidnapping was positive on Ed's part. The authorities and the news coverage questioned Ed's integrity and they did raise the possibility that he had a hand in the children's disappearances. From an authority perspective, I understand that you have to question everyone that's involved and, you know, play out worst case scenario because you never know. You can know someone for your whole fucking life and they'd be doing some really shady shit. So you really, you just don't know. But it is sad because Ed was truly just the sweetest bus driver. He cared so much for these children and he did everything that he could to help get these kids out alive and stayed calm for them. So I couldn't imagine how hard it was on Ed. And at the end of the day, like he was responsible for 26 children. He deserved nothing but positive attention from this and I will definitely get there in a little bit. I'm going to get into the three kidnappers themselves and a little bit about how they planned this kidnapping. So the three men involved were 24-year-old Frederick Woods, 24-year-old James Schoenfeld, and 22-year-old Richard Schoenfeld. All three men lived in the expensive suburbs of San Francisco, coming from wealthy families. Fred and Richard worked on repairing old cars together, so they shared a business doing this, and James hung around Fred's house a lot, so the three of them knew each other well. Fred also had a friend, David Boston, who was a filmmaking major at the San Jose State University. Fred's dream was to flip cars and use the proceeds to finance David's projects and become producers. So Fred wrote a letter to his friend David 
that he has this great idea for a good movie, which he gets from watching Dirty Harry, which I had no idea what this movie is, so I had to Google it. But long story short, this movie is literally about a guy who hijacks a fucking school bus and asks for ransom and holds a kid at gunpoint. So you probably get the correlation. Fred starts talking about this dream of his to James and Rick, and at first it's kind of hypothetical. They're daydreaming and brainstorming while they all work on these cards together, but Fred starts to take it seriously, and at some point they end up assigning roles to each other, and of course, Fred would be the leader. James becomes the planner, and Rick is kind of just there for the ride of it all, but they're all in it for government money. So they were all interested in obtaining $5 million from the state of California, although none of them even really needed the money. The three men planned this kidnapping a year and a half before it actually took place, and their logic was that they needed multiple victims for multiple millions, which therefore this led to them having to kidnap children because they said people will do anything for children and they'll get more money from the government. Since James was the planner, he kept a notebook that contained all the brainstorming and ideas for the kidnapping. As per James's notebook, the thinking went like this. They'll need a bus, a plane, and three bands. One to get Fred and Rick to Chowchilla for the hijacking, and two more at a hidden location to transport the kids from the bus to the quarry. The notebook also stated this. Rick and Fred will board the bus. Rick will disable the driver with chloroform, and Fred will drive the bus to the hidden location where Fred keeps an eye on the bus. Rick will escort the kids two by two to the vans where Jim is watching. Watch for kids making a run for it. Count the kids. Conceal the kids. Hide the vans. Go somewhere else to collect the money. From there, Rick will get on a plane to take James to a small, uncontrolled airport. They'll meet Fred, who will hijack the plane. Then Rick and Fred load the dummies into the plane with parachutes and an extra parachute, of course. Jim is taking possession of the money. Thus, a state-employed secretary will be appointed to bring the money and three brown paper parcels and instructed to dot dot dot. And that's it. They don't finish the sentence in the notebook. Another section in the notebook stated other general stuff that they had to do, such as get infrared to see at night, get bumper stickers to be more anonymous, ask for used bills, don't spend money for several years, um, get an x-ray truck with gas masks, just random shit. And it's really funny because they also put burn the book, which obviously they forgot to do. So in December of 1975, James Wright in his diary that an exorcist is making him question his sanity and making him afraid of Satan. Then on New Year's Eve of 1975, he writes about his impatience and laziness and being a doormat to Fred and said he feels he's becoming immoral. Woods' father owned the quarry where they kept the children in the trailer underground and they already had plenty of guns but they needed to figure out what else they had to buy. 
So that's when they had to buy three surplus shore patrol vans and they moved them to San Jose. They buried the trailer, cut holes for vents and toilets. They reinforced the ceiling with lumber so it wouldn't collapse after it's buried, which clearly didn't go as planned <laughs> because it started to cave in. So all of this was being done in the fall of 1975. So by December of 1975, they were ready to go and took their action to plan in July of 1976. A search warrant was complete at the Woods' quarry and investigators found a gun used in the kidnapping, a draft of a ransom note, and even a document titled Plan. Two weeks later, all three men were captured. Richard turned himself into the authorities eight days after the kidnapping and was held in lieu for a million dollar bail. James was captured by police not far from the quarry and Fred was arrested in Vancouver, Canada after fleeing the country. On July 25, 1977, the three men pled guilty to 27 counts of kidnapping for ransom, but the 18 charges of robbery were dropped by the prosecution. On December 15, 1977, a Supreme Court judge found all three men guilty of kidnapping with bodily harm and received life sentences. I also want to point out that they should have all received life sentences without the possibility of parole, according to the state of California, although there were constant legal maneuvering and since they had money, they had luxury model attorneys. So the three of them became eligible for parole and the conviction of bodily harm was eventually overturned. So that really fucking sucks. The brothers, James and Richard, got parole and Fred actually just got approved for parole in August of 2022 after previously been denied 17 times. That is just ridiculous. But anyways, Ed, the bus driver, appeared in court and took the stand about what happened during the kidnapping. All the kids testified as well. One 10-year-old said she felt like the air was disappearing. She said, quote, It started to get hard to breathe. All I thought was the whole thing was going to cave in and we'd be squished. While the children were all given clean bills of health after their escape, the long-term effects have haunted many of them. When interviewed as adults, some victims have expressed they still have nightmares. Jennifer Brown was a victim and said, quote, Until recently, I slept with a nightlight. I have anxiety attacks when I'm in a confined space. I'm fortunate I'm not incarcerated or hooked on drugs, which is how some of the kids dealt with it. I'm as okay as a broken person can be. Chowchilla held a parade in Ed's honor and hailed him as the Chowchilla hero. The town even made an Ed Ray Day on February 26th in Chowchilla every year, and a park in the town was named for their homegrown hero. There was also a movie made called Vanished Without a Trace, where he was made the hero and reenacted the events of the kidnapping. Ed, including the children, were never the same. It broke them, gave them PTSD, anxiety, panic attacks, nightmares, and many suffer from depression and substance abuse. Unfortunately, even one of the victims shot a local tourist with a BB gun when their car broke down in front of his house. Unfortunately, Ed died in 2012 at the age of 91, but weeks before his death, almost everybody who was buried in the van with him came to his bedside to say goodbye. 
Ed's birthday was also made a local holiday, and a granite monument was dedicated to the victims that's located adjacent to the Chowchilla Police Department. This marked where the victims were reunited with their families. I'm so thankful that the children weren't physically harmed and that Ed was there to help them in such a traumatic time. It truly sucks that most of them have suffered from the long-term effects, but I'm also glad that justice was served to the three men and that they served out their entire time in prison. And that is the story of the Chowchilla bus kidnapping. Thank you all for listening and until next time.